MSW Media. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! 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 a glass, sit for a spill, it's time to have some fun, let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking, but this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Yeah, I know the feeling, Tom Hanks. Not having a Wilson around to keep me company. I bet a lot of you out there know that feeling as well. We're all alone. All alone. Well, not all alone. I've got my booze, which helps me do the show called What We're Drinking. And what we're drinking on this episode is Irish whiskey. Um... Specifically, Napogue Castle, 12-year-old, single malt Irish whiskey. I, back in February, which now feels like another lifetime ago, I went to Ireland. I'm the MC of a, an event called the Whiskey X, which happens all over America, or it did happen all over America, and it will again someday soon, I hope. So the folks at the Whiskey X sent me over to Ireland to visit some distilleries, to hang out with whiskey makers, people in the Irish whiskey industry. And one of them was a guy by the name of Tony Carroll, who works for Napogue Castle. Really fascinating guy, just a lot of knowledge about Irish whiskey. And a little later in the show, I'm going to play an interview that I did over there at a place called the Dingle Bar in Dublin, Ireland, with... Tony Carroll of Napogue Castle. So please stay tuned for that. Speaking of whiskey, um, if you don't know a lot about whiskey, even if you do, but you need to be reminded sometimes, a friend of mine by the name of Sam Green just came out with a book called The Beginner's Guide to Whiskey, Traditions, Types, and Tastes of the Ultimate Spirit. And it's a, it's a good way to you know get started on the road to becoming a whiskey aficionado, without having to take a mixology class. It's a it's a, a short little book. It's concise. It's, you know, I guess you'd call it a, uh, well, it's not a pamphlet, but it's it's about 140 pages, small, pocket size almost, and uh, it's really handy. And you can pick that up for about $15 on Amazon. So I recommend it. Again, Sam Green's Beginner's Guide to Whiskey. Speaking of books, I also chatted with an author of a brand new book that just came out this week called Spacefarers, How Humans Will Settle the Moon, Mars, and Beyond. That man's name is Christopher Wanjik. He is a Harvard-educated former employee of NASA. He also happens to be a very old friend of mine. We went to high school together and college at Temple University, and then he went on to Harvard for for graduate school, and I went on to become a degenerate. So I'm going to be talking to Chris in just a couple of minutes, and you're really going to want to stay tuned for that. We talk about lots of things, human beings and what we're going to be doing in space, hotels in space, drinking in space, the probability of ever really inhabiting Mars or even the moon, and Chris knows it all. So you're going to want to listen to that, and that's just that's going to be coming up real shortly. I want to mention that I was uh, recently on the Adam Carolla show. You should check that out on Adam's YouTube channel. We were drinking tequila, rum. What else? Um, what else do we have? Tequila, rum. And we drank a lot of it. That's why a bourbon and gin. And you want to check that out. Also, my weekly uh, spot I do with the folks from Flaviar. That's every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. If you go to Flaviar's YouTube channel, you can watch us do a live stream there. It's at live stream 
bar thingy. I hope everybody's doing okay out there. I hope your needs emotionally, physically, getting enough food, staying sane. I am doing my best. And I'm going to keep doing this show because it's one of the only things that's keeping me sane. And it is sort of my portal to the outside world getting to talk to people, albeit via Zoom. I've got two really compelling interviews for this episode. I don't want to screw around. I think we should get right to them. So the first one uh, is with Christopher Wanjik, author of Space Fairers. And let's go to it. So with me now uh, is an old friend of mine, and I do mean old. Um, the hairline is, uh, tells the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've known this guy, I've known this man since before we were men. We were just boys uh, back in Father Judge High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We went to high school together, and we went to college together at Temple University. I, of course, would go on to great things. Following my Temple University, Chris, on the other hand, fell on hard times. Harvard University. It started at Harvard and heroin, as so often yeah. happens at Harvard. Uh, yeah. Started with meth and then heroin. And by the time he got his PhD, where'd you get your PhD from? Not afraid I had to drop out. I oh, only got the master's. Only got the master's. It was the drugs. But uh, no, no, I'm kidding. I kid. I kid here. He is, uh, he is the author of a brand new book just came out today called Spacefarers, How Humans Will Settle the Moon, Mars, and Beyond. He really is an old uh, dear friend, Mr. Christopher Wanjik. Chris, how are you, man? Great, Dan. It is a pleasure. Yes, old friend, uh, longtime follower of all your exploits. In fact, I think your audience needs to know two things about you, Dan. Okay. One is that all this stuff you say on your show, all these things that are in your book, they are absolutely true. Your audience has to realize that you're not even exaggerating. I really am that damaged. Yes. Uh, Trip to the you know Trump family farm at the winery. You know midnight calls with Hunter S. Thompson. All it's happened. All true, gang. It's all true. It did. It did. And uh, not much to him. In fact, if anything, I I tone back some of the stuff in my life because I'm embarrassed by uh, uh, <laughs> family things, of course. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you, man. So I uh, this book. Very excited. I, I, I caught a review of it on, uh, I was on Twitter. I, I follow you on Twitter and I saw a review and it just, uh, tell us a little bit about it. It just seems fascinating to me. Well, you know, I wanted, there's a lot of books out there about going to Mars, living on the moon. And, you know, it's just pure exaggeration. It's really not practical. Some of these ideas that people are coming up with. And I wanted to take a different approach and, and talk about what it would really take to get out there living in space. And, um, this wasn't my first idea for a book, I'll admit. So um, the publisher, Harvard University Press, they came to me. Uh, you might remember I was working at NASA for a good 10 or 12 years. Yeah, and so my, by the uh, way, before, yeah, before, just let, so give people some of your background so they understand why you're qualified to write a book like this. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, Harvard University uh, Press, they approached me for this book because I was working at NASA for about 10 years. And I had a pretty envious title, even better than some of your titles. I was the senior writer for the structure and evolution of the universe. Wow. And I held that position for 10 years. No one even challenged me. Well, I hate to tell you, I, on my business cards, I am the all being master of time, space, and dimension. So. Oh, that was you. That's me. <laughs> you brought me from my, my pedestal. I did have Playboy business cards that said, uh, my, my Playboy business cards used to say, nightlife columnist slash public menace. <laughs> yeah, <I remember> that. <laughs> yeah, anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm trying yeah, to keep so, this about um, you. They said, you know, we're, we're starting a new book on the universe, uh, a series on the universe. You can have any topic you want on the universe. And you think that would be pretty broad. Uh, but every topic I came up with was already taken, you know, black holes, neutron stars, gravitational waves. So this idea of living on other planets was way down on my list because I didn't even think it was feasible. I thought it was just pie in the sky nonsense. Uh, but that's what we settled on. And I started looking into the issue. And it really is fascinating. I think it's, it's uh, inevitable that we start living elsewhere 
but how we're going to do it, that's the question. So most obviously most people's frame of reference for something like this is 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 uh, popular entertainment, television shows, whatnot. I guess the most recent uh, the most recent example of that, and I guess the one that would maybe at, at least came across as seemingly realistic was the movie The Martian, starring yes. Matt Damon. But you you address that in the book. Now you talk right. about a lot of the things that are presented as feasible in that film. Are not almost everything that's presented as feasible in that film is not feasible, correct? Yeah, it was it was pretty close. Uh, you know, my uh, point of contention was the whole potato idea. Okay. <laughs> not to uh, you know, I think everyone saw the film at this point. No spoilers, but uh, he didn't successfully grow potatoes, but he wouldn't have been able to. Um, you know, the potatoes wouldn't have been able to grow in that soil because it's toxic. So <laughs> uh, whatever would have come out, you would have died from. And uh, also under those lights that he had, you wouldn't be able to produce a tuber. You could just produce some, some greens, but that's about it. And potato greens are uh, rather poisonous. So if he was going to do anything, he should have put a sweet potato in there because at least you can eat the uh, sweet potato greens. That well, you, was one idea. You, you, talked about, you talked about, in the intro to the book, you talked about in, in films, it looks so easy. They land, they land, and then they go to their ready-made space uh, hovel that's there waiting for them. and But that's not going to happen, right? You know, it's, uh, one of the things I found interesting in the beginning of the book is you were talking about, even in reality, not even in pop culture, but it, it, not even in film and television, but in reality, things that people didn't understand. Like, I didn't know that Apollo 11 damn near came close to crashing uh, Neil Armstrong, tell, tell a little bit that Neil Armstrong was trying to land the lunar module and what happened? Uh, yeah, they're kind of running out of gas <laughs> and, uh, you know, they're ready to land like, Oh wait, that's a crater. We probably shouldn't go in there. We'll topple over. I'll just go a little more. Oh wait, there's another crater. Maybe I shouldn't land on there. So he's like steering this thing. He's a, you know, he was an excellent pilot. He's steering this lander and they're down to maybe like 10 seconds worth of fuel left before that thing landed. They were really sweating it out in Houston. Wow. And yeah, that would have been catastrophic. Now, I'm I'm stupid. So tell me, if they only have 10 seconds of fuel left, how do they get back up? Oh, that was a different kind of area, a jumper that would get them back up there. So it was a whole, they couldn't switch it mid-flight to uh, as they were landing, but it would be a different reserve tank to, to, to take get off. them up. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so that, that would have been catastrophic. I mean, some of the other things you talk about in the intro was obviously we all know Apollo 13, but just how amazing it is that any of them survived that. Oh yeah. You know, one of the most harrowing things that almost happened was in between uh, Apollo, I think uh, 15 and 16 that, they missed it by a week. If, if someone was on the moon uh, at that time, uh, a week before they landed or so, they would have been irradiated by a solar flare and they wouldn't have been able to do anything. They would have been instantly dosed with like a, a lethal amount of radiation that they would have almost instantly died. So how, how, <laughs> uh, do, you, just, how do you know that? Though, luck. How did they know that though? How, who knew, who's tracking don't, that? that but how would you, how did you, how do you know that there was a solar flare a week before? Um, well, they could, they saw, they, they're monitoring to the sun. You can't predict them. Oh, I got you. you know when they're coming. And these are uh, atomic particles. It's not light. So it's not leaving, uh, it's not traveling at the speed of light. It's, they're traveling rather quickly, but it's still going to take a couple hours to get to the moon. So if you're monitoring it closely, you could at least warn the astronauts to get as much shelter as you can because you're about <laughs> to get hit, you're about to get hit with the crash and your pee and anything, get those diapers out, protect yourself as much as possible. Cause something nasty is going to hit you in a couple hours. How jumping ahead here to the sort of how realistic. So, or you know what, actually I don't want to jump ahead because one of the other things that I was, you know, I didn't, it's not something you think about until I started reading the book, which is back in the sixties, mm. there was, you know, Everybody was predicting back by by now we would have been we've been living on Mars. It would be the Jetsons. It would be the whole thing. But what you point out in the intro, which I find is fascinating, is the political leaders back then. None of them really gave a shit about 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 space exploration. It was just about right. winning. 
It's and, and right. which is so weird that Trump would start a space force. But no, it so what, back then Kennedy's thing was you you I think you put it this way in the intro. You said it didn't matter if it was a voyage to the center of the earth or to space as long as we beat the Russians. And and he said he specifically said and I guess in an interview that was finally released a couple of years ago was all he wanted because the Russians started this process before we did was mm-hmm. to beat them. Like That's we right. started later than you and we beat you to the mm-hmm. moon. And once they got there, nobody really cared. And then Nixon got so rattled by Apollo 13 That's that right. the last thing he tried to stop sub uh, 16 and 17, I guess he That's tried right. to stop yeah. subsequent missions because he was so worried that if something went wrong, it was going to derail his reelection chances. So it was, it was all politics. And once they'd gotten there, it's like, we don't need to go back. There's nothing there for us. Right. That's right. Yeah, it was uh, totally political. And uh, yeah, Kennedy at the time, you're talking 1962, he confessed to the NASA administrator, uh, I really don't care about space. Uh, you know, make sure you can do it. If there was any hero, it was really uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. He was the one who really uh, got into um, Kennedy's ear and whispered this idea, maybe we should try to land on the moon and beat the Russians, because uh, he wanted that, um, uh, that technical superiority over the Russians. And he pushed through with that whole idea. He would be the champion of this whole era. Uh, but the public, for the, the majority of the public, didn't want it. Um, you know, a lot of um, singers were singing songs. Uh, you know, um, uh, what was that? Um, oh, the famous song about Whitey's, Whitey's, Whitey, on, <laughs> Whitey's going to the, and I, I can't Whitey's pay. on the moon and I can't pay my bills. You yeah, know? And, exactly. Uh, and and ten, now, ten more years, I'm paying them still. And even now, I mean, it seems like like a rich person's folly. I mean, you hear about Elon Musk and Richard Branson mm-hmm. and people like that. And I think it's it to most people the idea is that people who are fabulously wealthy are worried about the future of the planet for their children or whatever and that's mm-hmm. why they're pushing, you know, finding another place for us because rather than hey, here's a better idea. How about we spend some of that fucking money fixing the problems we have here like climate change whatever and saving the earth but no i'll just i just got to figure out a way to get up to mars so that i can survive is that kind of along the lines that, of what- that's some of it and i certainly don't think mars is a plan b for earth um but i am excited about space because the whole concept of space science totally helps the earth i mean everything we know about global warming obviously is from satellites looking back down on earth this whole environmental movement was really started by that iconic image from Apollo um, Apollo Eight with the 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 um, the, the moon uh, the Earthrise image where they're they're going orbiting the moon and they take a picture of the Earth and everyone realized whoa that's all we got <laughs> we're all in this little thing here and that's pretty fragile existence and that really gave birth to the Earth Day uh, a few years after that um, so totally the things we do in space can, can um, help Earth. Plus the resources that are on the moon, you could turn that into an open pit mine and no one will care. <laughs> you can destroy the moon and use those resources for helping things on Earth and uh, building things for space. But human beings wouldn't do that, exploit something beautiful for short-term gain, would we? It's the moon. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you wouldn't know. Do it on the far side. You can't even see it. So how realistic is it, in your opinion, there would be, say, a settlement on the moon? Um, settlement depends what you're going to define as a settlement. There will definitely be scientific bases on the moon probably in about 15 years. It's going to look, look a lot like Antarctica. If you think about Antarctica, it's amazing parallels. You know, they, they, they first explored Antarctica around the turn of the century, 1900. They did uh, a lot of mapping, tried to get to the South Pole, then about 50 years passed because it was just, why are we on Antarctica? The challenge is over. We made it. There's nothing to do here. But 50 years later, the technology enabled nations to go back there. And then there was this ice race. Essentially, all these nations were trying to build bases down there. And now they have science year-round. And they got year-round crews uh, that stay down there for the year through the, through the darkness of the winter. And you have scientists coming down for a couple months a year. Sometimes tourists get to the coastal areas. Bourdain, Same thing's Anthony, gonna happen Anthony on the moon. Bourdain went down there. That's right. 
and drank. There's um, a bar cooking up it? some penguin meat. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it same it, thing it, can happen on the moon. You got a year-round crew, and then maybe some scientists doing uh, research for a couple months at a time. But not, not. Hey, uh, I got news. We're packing up the family, taking right. one of the well, taking the rocket. We're gonna go live on the moon. Right. I know that's what I love about some of these uh, books, these so-called science books. Why would you want to do that? Why would you have any interest of being on the moon? It's such a dismal place and you would just be trapped inside. You can't go out and you don't even know if What's gravity that like? is suitable. What? Wait, trapped inside and you can't go out. <laughs> I couldn't even conceive of that. It's like being on a cruise ship. <laughs> you mean like being alive right now? Um, right. This is a drinking show, uh, Chris. Yes. As you know, I know you do a lot of your drinking when you're when you're listening to the show. So you you had some uh, ideas we ahead of time that you uh, that you talked because I was thinking about space and, and alcohol. Yes. Uh, you mentioned a story about uh, together like whiskey and ice. That's right. That's right. Uh, you mentioned a story about Buzz Aldrin and wine. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, the first liquid to be drunk on the moon was not water, it was wine. And uh, so Buzz Aldrin, uh, the second man to step on the moon, uh, right behind Neil Armstrong, um, he, when they landed on the moon, he actually had communion wine with him. And as a sign of thanks to God uh, for uh, letting us land, even though we only had like 10 seconds worth of fuel left, um, he served himself up some communion wine. So the very first liquid drunk on the moon is alcohol, wine. Very wow. uh, not a well-known fact, but absolutely true. I I'd, I'd never heard that before. Now you yeah. I got to figure the Russians, they got the mere space they them being Russians, there must be some some drinking going on there, right? With the Russians, yeah. they love and, their and vodka. Any guess on what that might be? What alcohol? Vodka? Oh yeah. I guess they carried it along as rocket fuel as well, but uh yeah, they had the vodka, cognac, and uh, they even had some type of ginseng tincture. I don't know what that was all about, some liqueur made of ginseng. Um, but that was actually prescribed as a way to relax them on the Mir space station. And, um, and the astronauts loved it so much, they would try to sneak up more alcohol. So, you know, there's strict weight requirements sure. uh, in, when you uh, launch. So they actually lost weight purposely in the weeks before the flight, like a good 10 pounds. So they could load up their spacesuits with uh, bottles of vodka, so they could bring extra alcohol Incredible. up to the Mir space station. Well, you know, listen. I mean, in in I think a lot of people out there can probably relate right now because, and I mean that. I mean, we're all stuck. I mean, I'm good. You know, for me, it's the beginning of month two, and I do find myself going, "What am I going to do now?" You know, like <laughs> when you're alone and in space, you're alone. You know, except for the crew, twenty four seven. There comes a point where you go, I, I, yeah, I guess I should just drink. You know, maybe it'll help deal with the tedium of all this. You know, maybe I just take a couple of hours of having. Now, of course, that that probably doesn't bode well if something goes wrong, and you're you're hopped up on vodka and cognac. But you were saying that the U.S. banned alcohol, right? But there was a, some yeah. sort of a. You mentioned an experiment uh, to brew beer in space. Yeah, there's been a couple of weird experiments that are utterly useless, uh, but such as the International Space Station, nothing on there has been uh, practical. Um, I have no idea what NASA's resistance is to alcohol, other than Americans' general resistance to alcohol and that whole prohibition thing. Um, so that they tried it. They just assumed they would bring it up back in the early 70s with that um, orbiting space station called um, Skylab. And so Sherry, and some wine was on the menu for that, but the public caught wind of it and you know had a uh, raised a storm about it. I don't know why they were <laughs> why? so upset about it. Why are the public? But they being had to get rid of dicks. that alcohol. <laughs> I can't think of any safety reasons. Other, you know, of course, if you get really drunk, that's probably bad. But I, I don't know. I think they can control themselves. Would a beer? So would a beer have a... through with the International Space Station? They're oh, yeah, not yeah. allowed. The U.S. module is not allowed to have alcohol on it. It's alcohol free. <laughs> what if you the blue zone? What if you beer would beer have a head in zero gravity? No, beer would be horrible. Uh, it won't have that foamy head in the zero gravity. And anything carbonated like that, it kind of gives you um, some wet burps. So you're kind of like, you know, <laughs> regurgitating it. It'll be pretty nasty. Um, 
but but wine wine would work. They did make beer on the International Space Station. I can't understand the reason. University of Colorado did the experiment. I, I think it was just all for show. Uh, this whole idea, this fascination with zero gravity is beyond me because nowhere in our future will we be in zero gravity for a long time. I don't why, see why there's any purpose in, uh, in doing things in zero gravity. But the alcohol that they made had higher alcohol content. content. It's kind of like that German thing, uh, Science Fonzik, you know, like the 20% alcohol. It gets really high alcohol content when you make it in space. Wow. Now, did you, um, do you think that... Uh... If if the time comes where they are establishing uh, stations and stuff on the moon, they're going to have to have bars up there, right? I mean, people are. You would think so. They, they have, have them in Antarctica. They have them in the An in the Antarctica. Um, That's right. What about you? What are you What are you drinking right now? By the way, you are on. You are on what so, we're drinking, and, and you should be drinking. Right. I know. Well, it's you know because it's uh, this show and and the the topic of space. I am drinking homemade dandelion wine. This was made last year. I don't have the wine yet because the dandelions are just coming up. How do you? You might know you make dandelion wine from the flower of the dandelion. Um, but why am I drinking it here? Because I think when you get to Mars and you think about things that could grow on Mars well, you think weeds. Weeds. And it, weeds. Yeah. Not not weed. Oh, I don't. I maybe weed could grow there. I don't know. I, I live in California. The weed grows here. Yeah. Well, wait, but, uh, how, tell, go, go, how do you well make dandelion? How do you make dandelion wine? Give us a walk us through this. Uh, it's it just like a, a regular wine. You take the flowers, which are kind of sweet. The yellow flower, once it opens up, before they turn to the white uh, puffball, um, with yeast and um, water. And so you're um, you're fermenting you're fermenting the dandelion, uh, the yellow. Yeah, fermenting the dandelions. Yeah, just like you would ferment grapes, but you have to add the water. You don't have any grape juice. Sure. And then what do you are you aging it in stainless steel? Or are you putting it in a barrel or no? Um, in a, uh, no, I'm not that sophisticated. You know, a bottle with a little what's it called an aspirator. Okay. Um, yeah. Let, sure. Let the carbon let the carbon dioxide out. How long from the time that you start making it till you can drink it? Good nine months, maybe. Okay. And what's the alcohol content of your dandelion wine? I don't got that instrument. <laughs> you don't get but, it. But uh, I, I mean, can't would it be the around, around the same as it? Like a, you know, the average it's regular strong. wine is about 12%, 13%. Yeah, it's, yeah. Stronger, it's stronger than regular wine. It is. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing, though. Yeah. And you can't, it doesn't, you can't buy it anywhere, so I don't have anything to compare it with. Speaking of not knowing what you're doing. Tell you the truth, it tastes like crap. Speaking of not knowing what you're doing, we're from Philadelphia. Um, right. Do you uh, do you have anything uh, like a favorite Philadelphia-based alcoholic beverage that you appreciate? A beer or? Sure. You know, it's really it's hooked up with memories, right? And uh, you know, Ortlieb's going down to um, the jazz That's club, right. Ortlieb's Jazz Club, and. Uh, I didn't really drink Ortlieb's. I guess I was drinking uh, Yingling Black and Tan there because you could get it for like $2 a pitcher and listen to free jazz all so, night. So just so people know what we're talking about here, there's an area of of Philadelphia called Northern Liberties, which was one of the first areas to get gentrified in Philadelphia. We're talking 30 some years ago. Uh, it was, you know, it was, it, it, the neighborhood was, you know, pretty abandoned and there was an old Ortlieb's beer was a there was a brewery there and I don't think they were even making the beer anymore no. but they opened this jazz called Ortlieb's jazz house and it was kind of a world-class jazz bar yeah. it, and this is before the neighborhood certainly before it was fully gentrified like it is now now it's intolerable but uh Late 80s. this was yeah it was back the, and I was living down there at the time too and and it was such a cool spot because you go in, and I didn't know it at the time. You, Chris, you were a way bigger jazz fan than me, but I would later learn that I was seeing amazing jazz artists on any given night of the week would be playing in there. And as you said, I was I remember I was drinking Anchor Steam. It was very exotic Anchor Steam beer from San Francisco. <laughs> But you couldn't get it anywhere else. That didn't exist. Mm. Like it, people don't understand that th it's back then. It wasn't like it is now. You couldn't walk mm. into your favorite craft cocktail bar and find, mm. you know, 
and it's certainly beer gardens and things like there that didn't exist. You know, there was there, you went into most bars and there were maybe three or four beers on tap and that was it. And Ortlieb's Jazz House was one of the first places where you could at least get micro brews and then no one was calling them then back then mm-hmm. from around the country. Maybe not, maybe not from, uh, from the old world or anything, but certainly they were, you know, they, as I said, they had anchor steam. They had, I think they had a beer from San Diego and, uh, it was, you know, it was the early stages of discovery. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wonderful place. It was. And do you get to go back to Philadelphia very often? No, not much, much, uh, not much anymore. Where you're in Washington D.C. Yeah, Baltimore. Knocking out books. Now this book, this book just went on sale today because this show is going up on Tuesday. Uh, You can get it anywhere. Amazon. Well, you're gonna have to get it on Amazon because you can't go to the bookstore. Seriously, I mean, I you know I've as someone who's sanitized wrapper as someone who's written and published a few books myself, I can only imagine your. There must be some. How are you not getting down a little bit in that, like, your fucking book is coming out in the middle of this? But maybe that's not a bad thing if, if people are, you know, more people are online, they're reading more stuff, maybe? Yeah, my spirits are high. I'm getting some great reviews, um, some sophisticated places, I might say. You know, uh, uh, Science, the journal Science had a full page review of the book last week, very positive. Um, Science News, the current issue of Science News, uh, positive write-up. The Guardian, of course, uh, is one that you might have seen. Sure. Uh, ENT. So all positive reviews. It's uh, it's been pretty exciting right now. Well, and and I'm on your show. And you're on my show. You give me the time of the day masses. for you know twenty some years. That's right. So the you know and the, another thing about a book like this is this is the kind of book you could totally see like a Nat Geo or one of those channels maybe doing a limited series on a book like this. Where they, That's what I would hope so. Where they, you know, chapter by chapter, you get deeper into space, yeah. And just debunk a lot of that, you know, just kill people's dreams. That's really- <laughs> That's what I'm all about. <laughs> Chris, you've always been about- <laughs> I'm a dream weaver. <laughs> <laughs> just obliterate. No, man, this is all about dreams. I'm putting stuff in here that uh, people aren't thinking about. I'm yeah. telling you, in, in about five years, we're going to have space hotels- Okay. And that's going to be mind blowing, and but, it's really practical. Now, when, now when you say Bigelow, when you say space hotels, you don't mean you don't mean hotels on planets or on the moon. You just mean no. out of the Earth's atmosphere, like that's a, right. like that space hotels, like the show on mm-hmm. the show on HBO, Avenue Five or whatever it's called. That it's like a, it's a hotel in yeah. space. Yeah, that that's right. And they're going to be pretty basic at first, of course. But I mean, this is what already happened. Robert Bigelow. Uh, has already created an inflatable habitat that he used a SpaceX rocket on. That alone is significant because for the first time, we're seeing business-to-business transactions in space, not government to military to contractors. Okay, so people are making, businesses are making money in space. So Bigelow gets SpaceX to launch his habitat, which gets attached to the International Space Station as a test. And it's still up there now. Okay. And since they're just using it as storage, this has lasted for five years now, and it's quite durable. Now he's making two big, bigger, far bigger inflatables, lightweight, easy to get up into space. They'll have more volume than the entire International Space Station for about one percent of the price. Okay? But what's the so what's the allure? There. Is it the view? Is that pretty much it? You get to go up there and oh, look. Yeah. The lure is the zero gravity fun for about a week before it gets nauseating. That's the fun. So you can envision couples going up there, doing what couples do in zero gravity. That might be interesting. Why does it get nauseating after a week? I eat, it's just the same old stuff. I can't eat my food because it's floating around. Oh, okay, you, know? you don't mean actually physically nauseating. You mean just before oh, yeah. it becomes, you get over it. That's a good point. The nauseating part comes the first day until you kind of get used to that. <laughs> I actually then, you, then it gets tedious, yeah. I actually was offered... The chance I'm admitting this publicly for the first time a couple of years ago you know those zero gravity flights where they get the jets oh, and yeah. they go like this I was oh, offered yeah, the vomit comet. I was offered the opportunity to go oh. on by a uh, I think it was Grey Goose actually so Grey Goose uh-huh. was doing a promotion where they were going to have a bartender make a martini in zero gravity and I was the I was the person they invited to come up the, the media guy to do it 
And uh-huh. I, I think it was when I had my Sirius XM show and they wanted me. And I, I said, all right, yeah, let me do it. And then I went on YouTube and I started watching videos of it. Uh-huh. And then I started reading articles about it. You called it the vomit comet. And yeah. I'm, I get motion sickness. And I, and I was watching this and I'm going, I don't think I can do it. I think I'm, and I didn't, I ended up bailing on it. I didn't do it. And I, and mm. I, I, I don't know if I regret that or not because it's just very temporary, right? It, you're not, you're only in zero gravity for a few seconds, right? Yeah, I forget the exact time, maybe 20 seconds at a time over and over again. Yeah, it didn't seem maybe like... even longer than that. 30 seconds. It's it's quick. I just was feeling like just I was going gonna down. get I was gonna get sick. I was worried about getting yeah. sick. And so right. you could go up there and obviously that would be a one part of the allure, and then the other would be how much of the planet would you be able to see from up there? Would you you wouldn't oh, could, you would see you would see the entire planet because you're orbiting it. Wow. And you're probably going around the whole world probably every uh, couple of hours, so that's, you're seeing a lot. That's incredible. And when yeah. and when do you when do you believe that will become a reality? Twenty twenty five. Seriously, in yeah. five years. In five years, that's going to be up there. Then another, you know, they'll do. It's just a matter of getting a rocket ride to it. And Elon Musk is already preparing to launch people around the the moon let alone up to a little orbiting app. You know, the low Earth orbit, it's only like 200 miles straight up. Okay. <laughs> it's pretty insignificant. How, how long would that take you to get there in a rocket? Oh, you know, once, you know, like a half hour or so. It's the docking that gets more complicated, but you'll get close to it in about an hour or so. That's amazing. And how much you think- Everything's moving in orbit, you know? So you're trying to, it's moving like a 17,000 miles an hour and you you have to catch up to it and then- you know, connect to it. And what, and what do you think something like that's going to cost though? That's going to be the only, the wealthiest people are going to be able to do that. Right. This is true. But you know, the international space station, which I somewhat disparage in this book, uh, they are finally opening up their, um, the international space station to private astronauts, which is a euphemism for, you know, rich people. And um, so for about, I think the going price is about 50 million you could uh, <laughs> spend a couple days on the International wow. Space Station. Okay. But the price will come down. And I think uh, Bigelow's hotel would be, you know. <laughs> it's going to have to come million. way down for me. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. But you never so know. At maybe, least 10 million. Maybe, maybe they'll you. invite me up as a media member. That's and right. that one I won't turn down. Well, listen, uh, I, I want to thank you, man, for, for coming on the show. It's, it's, it's great to hear your voice. Uh, the, the, this is Chris Wanjik, and the, the book is called Spacefarers, How Humans Will Settle the Moon, Mars, and Beyond. It's available from Harvard University Press. Everywhere books are sold, which right now is only on fucking line. But get it. Get it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Chris is an amazing writer, and he's a brilliant guy. And he will, he will, all those dreams you had as a child about going to space, he'll crush them and he'll crush them. He'll grind them up like a dandelion beneath his boot. Uh, Chris, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for joining us, brother. Yeah. Thank you, Dan. Okay, man. Hey, it's Aisha Tyler. And before he was known as Podcast Dan, he was known to me and so many others as Puka Dan. And Puka, Dan, forever shall he be. Well, Puka Dan went to Ireland, as mentioned, back in February and had the opportunity to meet up with a man by the name of Tony Carroll, who works for Napogue Castle. And Tony had a lot of fascinating things to say about Irish whiskey. And if you like Irish whiskey, if you don't like Irish whiskey, if you like Irish accents... This is the one. Uh, this is the one for you. This little interview right here, and uh, I say we get right to it. I'm in uh, the heart of Dublin, Ireland, where I've been holed up for a few days, and having one of the best times of my life because whiskey. And I have whiskey in front of me. I have a man. I have a gentleman in front of me, who has brought this whiskey. I'm in a place called the Dingle Whiskey Bar. And the, the man with me is Tony Carroll. He is the, uh, the all-being master of time, space, and dimension for Napogue Castle Whiskey. Tony. How you doing, Dan? Uh, first of all, many thanks for having me. Um, 
welcome to Dublin, Ireland. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, tasting and discussing uh, the history of Napogue uh, in such a beautiful, uh, dedicated whiskey bar as the Dingle Whiskey Bar in Dublin. All right, City I'm going to challenge you immediately, Tony. Okay. I don't know if I'd say this is a beautiful whiskey bar. This is a fucking gritty whiskey bar. This is a gritty whiskey bar. This is a bar. gritty, down and dirty whiskey bar. I would agree, Tony. And I, I like that. It, it's, good to, it's good to have it. Uh, There's no airs and graces in here. It is a straight-up whiskey bar. It really is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I've made this mistake on a few of the... I've done some other recording while I've been here. I haven't immediately gotten into the whiskey. So I want to do that right away before even... I want to try some Nepogue. What okay. do we have? Okay, so in front of you right now, we've got um, Nepogue Castle 12-year-old single malt Irish whiskey. And all our whiskeys are single malts. So we've got a single malt 12-year-old We've got a single malt 16-year-old Napole Castle, which is aged for 14 years in um, bourbon barrel and finished for two years in Sherry Oloroso. But then this is our sort of our new line right now, which is our 12-year-old Napole finishes, finished in Italian Marsala casks. Okay. And the finishes, I guess, are the very, very, what we would say, the sexy end of the business. They're an extension to our standard 12, 14, and 16. And really what our finishes are, they're aimed at... Uh, rewarding our Napo customers who are developing and extending their taste profile, not only in Irish whiskey, but also into the wines uh, and the sherry olorosos that we are finishing our uh, whiskey in. So it's a real marriage of their taste profile, of the type of customer that's drinking Napo. So which we which we cheers with or slauncher with? Right I away. think we should slauncher with a sixteen-year-old. Okay, and the reason you know I what? want to slauncher with that is because because we're civilized. Because we're civilized. We're civilized it's people. Sixteen-year-old. So Let's this is it. grade one bourbon barrel. Okay, it's aged for fourteen years in in bourbon barrel and finished. One hundred percent of the liquid is then finished in sherry oloroso cask. Okay. One thing I will say to you is within the pogue. We're very, very, we're, we're very, very detailed on every level of our whiskey, not only just the aging and the quality of the liquid, but also the quality of the wood and the barrel that goes in here. So when we age in a sherry oloroso cask, we, we, for example, we make sure we're sourcing it from the very best sherry houses in Spain. We mine them, we bring them back. So high-end quality wood throughout. Okay? Slauncher. Enjoy. But 16-year-olds. Oh. So again, very, very deep. You can smell the sherry absolutely screaming at you here. You know, and even on the side of the glass there, you can see, you know, great legs. Slauncher. So I want to roll back a little bit here. Uh, Napo Castle, it's a, a very interesting brand. I've written about it uh, in, in the past. Tony will correct me if I'm wrong on any of the details here, but the uh, there's an American named um, Mark, Mark Andrews. Andrews back in the 1950s, came over here, and he actually purchased Napogue Castle. Correct, and that's really one of the sort of the, probably the second stages of uh, Napogue Castle and where the brand was founded. First of all, if we were to go back to the very start, and this is one of the beauties about Napogue, I guess in a world of where we, we speak a lot about marketing, and we speak a lot about how do we promote our brand. Irish whiskey is old, Irish whiskey, uh, is not a new product on the market. So marketing can be very, very difficult. And you'll see that with a lot of the new brands and new distilleries that are coming to the market, they have a challenge, which is how do we market something that is brand new, that's just four years old, albeit we've shiny distilleries, how do we promote it? For us, we don't have that problem because our history and heritage of the Napogue brand goes right back to the 1400s, actually, which was back to Sean McNamara, who was a high king of Ireland, a uh, high king of Munster, excuse me. And uh, he had, up to at one stage, he had over 42 castles in the west of Ireland uh, for the McNamara clan, but his HQ uh, of the McNamara clan was the Napogue Castle. Uh, over many, many years, they reigned out of uh, Napogue Castle. Uh, but unfortunately, by the by, about 1920, the uh, the castle became uh, fell into disrepair and uh, uh, was left vacant, and actually turned into sort of over to a local farmer who ran the the area and the ground uh, as a farmer. It's kind of like a almost like a ghost town. As you absolutely, call it absolutely, okay. very very dilapidated sure, sure, uh, sure. castle, what yeah. have you. So then, uh, which is really the start of the Napogue brand and Irish whiskey uh, story, uh, Mark. Edwin Andrews and his wife Lavone from Texas have a huge love of Ireland. They rock in into Shannon Airport in uh, County Clare and they find a derelict and dilapidated Napoleon Castle and they fall in love. 
thankfully the, uh, the Andrews are wealthy people and they decide to spend their money buy the castle and bring it back to its, uh, its former glory. Thankfully Lavone is a qualified architect, she does the whole design and actually to be rewarded for her design and work uh, on the castle she got inducted into uh, the English Architects um, uh, Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. Thing, yeah. yeah, so uh, that's where our story, but on top of being, you know, uh, very successful business people already, Mark had a huge love of uh, whiskey. So he started buying up um, barrels, and back then you didn't buy cases, you didn't buy bottles, you generally bought a barrel of whiskey back then. Uh, but everything was bond. Then, everything right? was bond. Everything was Absolutely. bond. Absolutely. So explain what that means, Tony. Uh, everything was bond back then. So basically, you went to the bonded warehouse, which is once the producer. Uh, such as your Jemisons, uh, your Tullamore Jews, etc. Et and that's really where the majority and where the start of Napo Castle's whiskey came from, which was uh, John B. Daly's distillery in Tullamore. And we all know there's a famous uh, Tullamore brand out there right now. So that would have all merged in together. Dew. But yeah, Jew, which yeah. is a fabulous whiskey yeah, again. Whiskey. So, of course, um, that's where Napo Castle, uh, the first uh, liquid would have come from, was B. Daly Distillery in Tullamore. Uh, he would have, uh, as I said, secured uh, underbond um, uh, his Napo Castle. And that's actually where the first uh, aged whiskey for Napo came from, which is the 1951 release, which was actually, so it was set down, laid down in whiskey barrels. So when did he buy the castle? He bought the castle in 1960. 60, okay. 60, but in 1951, the whiskey already had well, been had laid already down. Been, uh, been and laid he already, down. Okay. So then when he, he purchased it, actually, in 1966, but it was actually laid down in 1951, and he bottled it in 1987. So it's a 36-year-old, okay, um, single-pot whiskey, uh, and it's actually one of the oldest and commercial whiskeys uh, in, in the world. Uh, for Irish whiskey. So we're, again, that's where we get our heritage from. So we're very, very lucky. And I guess, look, we, 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 we've always continued with the element of where's our distillery? A lot of people ask us this question, you know, where do we go to see where your whiskey is made? Well, our whiskey is made in uh, Middleton Distillery in County Cork. And many and people... So, and people, people listening to the show know that, you know, for a stretch, Middleton was essentially the only distillery left making Irish whiskey at the end of the 20th century, you know, so uh, it's a very, it's a very well-known place. It's a place that does, makes amazing juice. Absolutely. That's where you're getting it from. Absolutely. And look, you know, at the end of the day, when you've got the Ferrari of Irish whiskey making your uh, product uh, and very, very happy to do so, we're very, very happy to keep that relationship uh, alive and well. We're very, very proud to say it. Uh, Jemison, which is part of the Middleton Distillery, obviously one of their products. Jemison has done a fabulous job worldwide. Wait, wait, was it Jemison? Jemison? Never heard of him. Never heard of him. What are uh, they doing? <laughs> when you climb out under that rock eventually, you're going to find Jemison. Are they Jemison. a new up-and-comer? <laughs> they're a new cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jemo! Yeah, so they're the... In the states, everything. JMO. JMO. You know, but they've done a fabulous job in uh, in educating the world, really. Uh, on Here's what I say: if it wasn't for Jameson. Oh. Uh, you know, the category was dead; it was dying. Jameson, I think, in a lot of ways, helped lift everybody up. Without a doubt. And had it not been for Jameson, had it not been for their, you know, and there's a lot of strange things that went into Jameson becoming popular the the Irish car bomb which will correct stay we'll away from, but it, it but it, in, certainly in the states that that drove it a lot absolutely shots in the states it did whatever and what that did is it opened the door for other Irish whiskeys to come up that are probably doing you know uh, not uh, not to disparage Jameson but they're able to do higher quality stuff that now that people have gotten introduced to Irish whiskey through Jameson are going, now I want to go to the next level. Correct. I want to try this. Again, Jame, you know, the 16-year-old, the 12-year-old, the, the, the things you're doing here kind of made possible because Jameson brought Irish whiskey back. 100%, and I think you'd be wrong to think anything but that they've been, they're being rewarded 
uh, continually now, thankfully, uh, on the back of been staying in the game. They stay true to themselves and stay true to Irish whiskey. And a lot of the things that we have, uh, such as the Irish whiskey file, such as um, the rules and regulations around creating and producing Irish whiskey, is down to the trials and tribulations of what Irish distillers have gone through. And in the tough times, when the rest of us and the smaller brands could never dream of travelling to America or worldwide promoting our brand, uh, Jemison done that for us and done it for the country and done it for the whiskey. So uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, if you ever come across an Irish man or an Irish whiskey man that doesn't tip his cap uh, to Jemison and Irish distillers, um, don't trust the man. Irish whiskey is such an approachable whiskey. Without a doubt. And look, you know, I guess, uh, as I, uh, and as I mentioned with Jemison, you know, they're the entry level let's try this category, let's have a look at Irish whiskey. And that's where you start. You start with your Jemisons and your Bushmans. But at the end of the day, you know, like all customers and consumers, you want to expand, you want to grow, and you want to see, well, you know, when I go to Ireland, is everybody drinking Jemison? Do everybody drink the standard blended whiskey that, you know, I'm drinking maybe in America? And the answer is not particularly, okay? And what you need to look at and see is, and a lot of people come to Ireland, and, and I give the example, when we go to New York, when an Irish person goes to New York for the first time, you know, we want to do the Statue of Liberty. We want to do all the usual bits and pieces. But after our second and third time, we really begin to sort of delve into New York and America and say, come on, I want to see how you guys really live, what you eat, what you drink. I want to get the feel of the locals. And, and similar to here, when the Americans and, and worldwide customer comes to Ireland, they begin to say, look, stop throwing me out what I get in, our, in America. I know the Irish whiskies that are on offer there. Come on, show me the juice that I'm not getting all the time. And that's where the beauty of the smaller brands like the Napogues are beginning to really, really chip away at the market. So what, what's actually happening at Napogue Castle itself? Nabo the family still own it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, the uh, Mark Edwin Andrews III uh, has been the current chairman of Castle Brands, which is uh, the Napogue company um, since its creation. Um, I had dinner with Mark actually only at Christmas here in Dublin. Um, and you want to see how proud that man is when he comes back, knowing what his dad founded and started back in the 1960s, to see Mark here, uh, you know, drinking the Pogue in a, in a local bar and hotel. It's an absolute honor uh, to sit with himself and his wife. And with that, I'm going to leave you uh, because Tony and I are going to actually go out and do some more whiskey drinking. Uh, we're going to start here at the Dingle Whiskey Bar, and then we're going to, where, where should we go next? You got some spots? The world is our oyster. The world is our oyster here in Dublin Island. Tony, uh, where can people find you and the Pogue Castle on the intranets? Uh, castlebrands.com is our website, um, and napoguecastle.com. Check it out, folks, really. Napoge Castle is a fantastic Irish whiskey. I've been here for a few days. I have been sampling a lot of Irish whiskey, and this is right there at the top of the heap. I love it. Tony, thank you for joining me, man. You're welcome, Dan. Look forward to seeing you in New York. Yeah. That's all I got for you today. I want to thank Tony Carroll, Napogue Castle. I want to thank Christopher Wanjik, remind you to pick up his book, Space Fairs, and also Sam Green's book, The Beginner's Guide to Whiskey. I'm posting another show this week with my dear friend. Wait, where'd you go, drumbeat? There you go. Come back. My dear friend Suzanne Santo, an amazing singer-songwriter, she's on the next episode. I hope you'll tune in for it. Uh, please follow, uh, follow me on Instagram and Twitter, at The Imbiber. Oh, and you can find this uh, part of this Christopher Wanjik interview on my YouTube channel. That's all I got. Love you.